Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 9th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present what we are calling The Jews in Europe, The Reuschland Affair Revisited, Part 1. Over these last several months, we have spent a lot of time discussing the early years of the Reformation relative to the life of Martin Luther, discussing things such as the early humanists in Germany and the Reuschland affair. We had frequently stated that we wanted to better quantify the role of the Jews, who were indeed operating behind the scenes of these events. Since that time, we have learned that E. Michael Jones, in his book The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History, has done much of that research for us. Therefore, we are going to make a presentation of Chapter 7 of Jones's book, which is titled Reuschland vs. Pfefferkorn. We believe that revisiting the Reuschland affair from Jones's enhanced perspective, where he focuses on aspects of the Jewish question which our German historians had neglected, will not only enhance our understanding of the nature and objectives of some of Luther's supporters during the Reformation, but also exhibit for us the Jewish mentality that agitated the later revolutions in Europe and produced documents such as the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Both of these topics are of great interest in relation to our presentations here over the last year, and those which we hope to make here in the near future. So we believe that, as we had discussed the Spanish Inquisition and saw the Jewish nature, the nature of the Jewish conversos in Spain, and as we discuss the Jewish role in the Reuschland affair, from Jones's perspective, that perhaps that will give us a better foundation by which to understand the Protocols of Zion and the later years of the Reformation as we progress through our presentation of Martin Luther in Life and Death. So without further introduction, we shall commence with E. Michael Jones. Roughly 270 years after Nicholas Donin persuaded Pope Gregory IX to allow him to proceed against the Talmud, another Jew converted to Christianity had the same idea, and it wasn't quite as original, but we will get to that briefly. In 1504, Joseph Pfefferkorn, a Moravian Jew converted to Christianity, along with his wife and child. After changing his name to Johann at his baptism, Pfefferkorn spent his first years as a Christian wandering through southern German-speaking lands preaching the conversion of the Jews. In 1509, he settled in Cologne, where he made contact with the Dominicans, who had promoted Donin's efforts to convert the Jews three centuries earlier. In 
Pfefferkorn's enthusiasm for the Christian faith was undeniable, but the results of his preaching were meager. In 1516, at the height of his fame, he claimed he had converted 14 Jews after years of effort. He claimed another five would have entered the church if the Jews hadn't blackened his name. Pfefferkorn would become famous as a publicist, not as a preacher. The printing press was transforming the movement of information in Europe, and he made good use of this new technology. In one of his earliest writings, Der Judenspiegel, or Mirror of the Jews, Pfefferkorn candidly describes his conversion. I was born in the Jewish faith, and am now, by the grace of God, a Christian, he wrote. He lived by usury before converting, but gave it up as a Christian because usury is immoral. If I continue to associate with Jews, he continued, and continued to take usury, what would you say other than that I was in serious sin and that I never really became a Christian? And everyone would condemn me by saying that the blood and suffering of Christ had been lost on me. What help would the holy sacrament of baptism have been to me? And interestingly here, Pfefferkorn repudiates the exact manner of false conversion in which the so-called conversos in Spain had been emulating over two centuries up to this time, at least in this one regard. The conversos of Spain would convert to Christianity and not give up their usury. Pfefferkorn's admission, back to Jones. Pfefferkorn's admission that he was a usurer is significant in light of later slanders. He was accused of criminal activity and even of being hanged for it. But Pfefferkorn denied the charges, saying, Two Jews wanted to sully my reputation with charges of theft. Pfefferkorn filed suit against his accusers before the imperial court, and they were obliged to pay 30 florins to cover my expenses and had to retract the accusations in public. Most charges against Pfefferkorn are traceable to a document originating from the Jews of Regensburg. Among its milder statements was the claim that he was an illiterate butcher. He was neither illiterate nor was he a butcher, an occupation morally less reprehensible than that of moneylender. In his groundbreaking History of the Jews, Heinrich Gretz recites the slanders faithfully and uncritically and adds a few of his own, calling Pfefferkorn an ignorant, thoroughly vile creature, as well as the scum of the Jewish people and a noisome insect who was a tool of the ignorant and fanatical Dominicans of Cologne a city known to be an owl's nest of light-shunning swaggerers who endeavored to obscure the dawn of a bright day with the dark clouds of superstition hostile to knowledge. The vehemence of Gretz's attack is not, it seems, a function of historical sources, 
but of the very specific damning charges Pfefferkorn leveled against the Jews about their rights and more importantly their covert attacks on Christians. So Heinrich Gretz was an editorialist defending the Jews as well as a supposed historian. In this instance, as we learn from sources such as Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, condemnation of the Jews for their rites and rituals and for their covert attacks on Christianity are more than appropriate. Unfortunately, Luther himself made that realization rather late in life. E. Michael Jones often quotes Heinrich Gretz and many other Jewish historians, and we understand that sometimes, for a lack of other sources, it is necessary to do that, especially when researching things pertaining to the Jews. But we should always be critical of their words and their claims and get corroboration wherever possible. To his credit, Jones displays the capacity to criticize his sources and to view their work critically when comparing their accounts against others. But Jones uses other sources as well. And here throughout this chapter, he is very often citing books on Pfefferkorn and Reuschlin by Erika Rommel by German-language historians Hans Martin Kern and Charles Zika, and another Jew named Ludwig Geiger. But not all of his sources are Jews. Continuing with his assessment of Gretz's treatment of Pfefferkorn, Gretz claims Pfefferkorn did not write the famous series of tracts that began with Judenspiegel, but instead lent his name to a new anti-Jewish publication written in Latin by Ortuinus Gradius, one of the light-shunning Dominican swaggerers. And of course, Gretz is showing a large amount of hostility towards these men who would uphold traditional Christianity as it was in the medieval period which was the hegemony of the Roman Catholic Church. By Ortuinus Gradius's name, we can safely assume that he was also a humanist. The leader of the Cologne Dominicans was Jacob Hochstraten, or Hoogstraten, in honor of his native town. Gretz refers to him as an inquisitor, or heretic hunter, who literally longed for the smell of burning heretics, and in Spain would have been a useful Torquemada. Gretz's slanders are simply not true. Pfefferkorn, as his intimidable style and intimate knowledge of Jewish ritual indicate, wrote his own tracts. Hans Martin Kern says he can in no way be seen as a tool of the Cologne Dominicans. Ludwig Geiger, Gretz's contemporary, Geiger was born 31 years after Gretz, Gretz being born in 1817. Ludwig Geiger noted Pfefferkorn was later accused of scandalous activity by his enemies, including the scurrilous charge that his wife had illicit intercourse with the Dominicans. But Geiger concluded 
there is no proof for this allegation or the others, and wonders how did they come into existence. The answer is simple. Stung by Pfefferkorn's criticism, the Jews invented slanders, should remind us of a lot of people today, invented slanders to blacken his name and dissuade others from taking him seriously. I know a Jew in Chicago that does this all the time. Geiger, like Gretz, was a German Jew, but unlike Gretz, not so enraged by Pfefferkorn's conversion as to accept unfounded slanders. The times had changed since Nicholas Donnan's conversion in the 13th century. The odium of being Jewish stuck with Pfefferkorn in spite of his baptism. The Dominicans and the Franciscans faithfully supported him in his efforts to convert the Jews. But the mendicants no longer were the cutting edge of European thought. Something had happened to the European mind. It was Pfefferkorn's lot to discover what. And of course we should know that Christians should always have odium towards the Jews, who even when they convert always carry with them a certain Jewish agenda. For instance, in large part, the Jews are responsible for the universalism of the Roman Catholic Church because they are responsible for obscuring the identity of the true Israelites of Scripture. We have seen that even in medieval Spain, it was conversos who led the way in wayward attempts to convert Arabs and Mestizos as well as other Jews to Christianity. Why is it? that so many medieval Jews converting to Christianity immediately sought to force other Jews to convert as well. And once Jews claimed to convert, true Christians exalted them above all others. Like a dog that loves ticks, the lack of Christian odium towards Jews has allowed the parasite to destroy the host. Continuing with Jones. Pfefferkorn characterized himself as a wandering preacher to the Jews immediately following his conversion. Der Judenspiegel was supposed to show Jews their errors and prove the truth of Christianity. His second book, Judenbeit, ridiculed Jewish penitential practices. Maybe he's talking about waving the chickens over their heads. In 1513, Pfefferkorn received a permanent position in charge of the Hospital of St. Ursula and St. Revelin in Cologne, a position he held until the end of his life. While traveling through Mainz, Oppenheim, Hadelberg, Ulm, and Munich, he made contact with the Franciscans, who suggested in the confessional that he take up the battle against Jewish books, Jewish usury, and for Jewish conversion. And here we see that Pfefferkorn did not really originate the 15th century, or I should say by this time, 16th century battle against the Jews in the Talmud that Jones seems to suggest in the opening paragraphs of this chapter where he compared him with Nicholas Donnan. 
as we saw it depicted in The History of the German People at the Close of the Middle Ages by Johann Janssen in our ongoing series on Martin Luther, the Dominican monks were already quarreling with Reuschlin and the Jews over the books of the Talmud when Pfefferkorn took it upon himself to be the leading spokesman in that struggle. Now we also learned that Pfefferkorn had gotten his encouragement to assume that role from Franciscan monks, so they must have also been previously engaged in the quarrel. Christians wanted the quarrel. They wanted to get rid of the Talmud, but they also must have felt that they somehow needed Jewish expertise in the Talmud on their side in order to do it. However, as Martin Luther realized several decades later, getting rid of the Talmud alone would not change the nature of the Jew. That is basically the lesson that the Spanish learned in the Inquisition. We also see that like so many other Jewish converts of his time, Pfefferkorn profited from his conversion by being endowed with a comfortable Christian administration. Abandoning usury, he nevertheless made a profitable living as a converso. Returning to Jones, perhaps he may not have converted so quickly if he would have had no choice but to be a farmer. Pfefferkorn, like Donnan, knew Judaism from the inside. That familiarity precipitated Gretz's rage. Pfefferkorn had studied Jewish writings with his uncle, a rabbi, and we would say that Gretz was enraged, just as the Talmud is said to argue that a goyim who reads it must die. Gretz is angry that Pfefferkorn shared knowledge about Jewry with Christians. That's the real reason for Gretz's rage. Countering the claim that he was illiterate, a butcher and a thief was a document emanating from Dasha in 1504, in which Pfefferkorn portrayed the Jews as engaging in covert warfare against Christians through usury and the subversion of religious vows. The Jews, according to Pfefferkorn, subverted the monks' vow of poverty by bribery, their vow of chastity by sexual seduction, and their vow of obedience by undermining all authority. Pfefferkorn pointed to more than 40 Christians who had abandoned the faith as a result of Jewish subversion, almost three times the number of Jews he had brought to Christianity by his preaching. And there should be little doubt that the falling away from Christianity of so many Protestants and Catholics since the Reformation is largely the result of Jewish propaganda poisoning ignorant European minds. Every atheist, every New Ager, and the so-called neo-pagan is an unwitting victim of the Jew. So it started on a much smaller scale long before the Jews were even emancipated. Pfefferkorn spoke with the air of a man who was giving away secrets, and here Jones is citing the non-Jewish historian Erica Rommel, or at least non-Jewish so far as we know. 
Because of his insider's knowledge, his claims were a threat to the Jews. In his pamphlet, The Enemy of the Jews, written in 1509, Pfefferkorn reiterated Donin's claims, documenting Jewish blasphemies against Jesus, Mary, and the Apostles, and the curses against Christians the Jews incorporated into their daily prayers. All of these things Martin Luther had complained about at length 35 years later. The Jews, said Pfefferkorn, utter various insults and shameless words against God every day. Mary, his most worthy mother, and the whole heavenly host. The Jews called Jesus Mamzer ben Hanido, which is to say, one born from an unclean union. And Jones notes that although Pepricorn doesn't say so, Mamzer is tran- traditionally translated bastard. The Jews are similarly vehement in denouncing Christ's mother, calling her a sono, which Pfefferkorn translates as a notorious sinner. Again, Pfefferkorn is discreet. The word means whore. Pfefferkorn says the Jews call Christian churches mashkav or beskith, and that is latrines or shithouses. Additionally, the Jews hate the sign of the Holy Cross and find it quite unbearable. If they see pieces of wood or straw on the ground that are by chance arranged roughly in the shape of a cross, they push it apart with their feet that they may no longer have to look at it. If a Jew knowingly crosses a churchyard or listens to an organ, he believes that his prayers will not be heard by God for 30 days. Pfefferkorn also claimed Jews were revolutionaries who pray for vengeance against the whole Christian church and especially the Roman Empire that it may be broken up and destroyed. And that would be Germany especially, the seat of the Holy Roman Empire at that time. The prayer for revolution is so significant that the Jews are not allowed to say this prayer sitting down. Rather, they must stand, nor are they permitted to talk among themselves until the prayer is ended. Whenever war or rebellion breaks out among us Christians, Pfefferkorn says, the Jews are heartily pleased, hoping that the time is near when the empire will be destroyed. Pfefferkorn wrote Judenweint, to prevent the damage which the many dogs, meaning the Jews, do to Christian power in both the spiritual and worldly sphere. The humanists and the reformers who saw Pfefferkorn as a tool of the powers of darkness would ignore his warning. And that is telling. But within three years of his death, German peasants had driven more than one prince from his throne in southern Germany, and it looked as if the revolutionary spirit was going to spread to France and the Low Countries too. And Jones is speaking about the Peasants' War. In part two of Judenweint, or Judenweint, 
How the Jews Ruin Land and People Pfefferkorn describes how Jews get money through usury. He also explains the harm and damage the Jews cause to the country and the people through usury by explaining how debt accumulates when interest is compounded. After 30 years, the debts amount to an unfathomable 106 tons of gold, 14,810 gulden, 28 Weissfennig and 11 Heller. That's the result of some sort of calculation. Jones neglected to include the amount of the principal in the citation. Thus, the poor Christian, when he has nothing further to pawn, must run away and live out his life in poverty, which happens often and many times. Pfefferkorn certainly seems to be the prototype of what is often referred to as the self-hating or self-loathing Jew. However, it could be possible that he believed he could sincerely convert, even if Christians should have rejected all such conversions. But medieval Christians still believed that Jews could sincerely convert, and it seems that Nobody ever learned from the experience of the Spaniards just several decades before this. But what is important to note is this. The attitudes which these medieval Jews had towards Christians, the crudity of the language, the attitudes reflected in the blunt statements attributed to Jews, which we also see in the pages of Martin Luther. And as we are about to read, their hope in a Messiah that will allow them to rule over all the world and dominate the Goyim, all of these same attitudes and attributes of the Jews are found in a document which surfaced a few hundred years later called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. It is often argued that the real elders of the Jews could never have written anything so crude, but here it is, right in front of our faces in the time of the Reformation. Back to Jones. In part three, Pfefferkorn explains how Jews use money to corrupt the morals of Christians, another element of the protocols. Jews use their ill-gotten wealth to cause Christians to commit great sins. Jews usually prevail in court because of bribery. The only reason for this is their ill-gotten money, which Christians accept from them in exchange for helping to muddle and cover up their case and make it appear just. Jews use their wealth to lead astray not only the common people, but even educated men, corrupting by corrupting the morals of Christians and by undermining their faith. The Jews, Pfefferkorn writes, caused many Christians, learned and unlearned, to doubt their faith, as I have shown in other books of mine. 
Thus, there is much heresy where Jews live. Also, one finds that Christians commit unchaste acts with Jews and have children by them. These children remain Jews, which is no doubt a great, notable, and shameful evil. Christian blood is subjected to eternal damnation. And, as I have mentioned at the beginning of my booklet, there is in the whole city no sect or nation that hates the Christians more than the Jews. The Jews also live in a world of political illusions generated by the central hope of the Jews that a Messiah will deliver them. This Messiah will come as a secular ruler, a king with great power and wealth to rule and subdue the world. Pfefferkorn reveals the secrets of the Jews at great personal risk because, as he says, quoting again, I know well, if I fell among Jews, they would devour me as a wolf devours sheep, for this was reported to me. Jews from several countries, he continues, have made a pact to kill and murder him. Pfefferkorn warns, if I should disappear, have no other thoughts than that I was killed by the Jews as they killed others before me. There are these are the precise attitudes projected in the same blunt language that we see in the Protocols of Zion. However, by the time of the Protocols, the Jews see their appointed ruler as their own appointed ruler as their Messiah, which they describe as a supposed descendant of David, the King of the Jews, and the Supreme Lord in Protocol 24, where they assert that the prop of humanity, in the person of the Supreme Lord of all the world, of the Holy Seed of David, must sacrifice to his people all personal inclinations. The Protocols therefore use the same language that Pfefferkorn uses where he says that the Jewish Messiah will come as a secular ruler, a king with great power and wealth to rule and subdue the world. The Protocols are an extension of the desires of the Jews as they were illustrated by Pfefferkorn and by Luther 350 years before the Protocols appeared. The only thing that changed in those 350 years was Jewish emancipation and the ability of Jews to infiltrate every corner of Christian life in Europe. Aside from the founding of the secret societies, which probably existed back in Pfefferkorn's day, where Judaism was basically a secret society of its own. Judaism was a secret society of its own and they didn't need Masons. Pfefferkorn concludes his pamphlet by urging Christian rulers to regulate the lives of Jews more closely. They should be forced to give up usury and to take on lowly occupations like sweeping dung in the streets. As his final point, 
he makes a recommendation that would generate conflict for the next decade. Indeed, if Gretz is right in seeing the Battle of the Books as the spark that set off the Reformation, it would generate conflict for centuries to come. Pfefferkorn recommended confiscating Jewish books, specifically the Talmud, because deprived of their books, the Jews would abandon their false beliefs and embrace Christianity. Like Donin, Pfefferkorn felt Jewish heresy was a function of the Talmud. Deprived of the books that were blinding their minds and poisoning their souls, the Jews would embrace the Christian faith. But the reality is that Jews who are ignorant of the Talmud continue to act in a manner which is absolutely contrary to the Christian faith. We should not see the Reuschland controversy, or the Battle of the Books, as it is called here, as the spark that set off the Reformation. With that, Gretz is taking far too much credit for the Jews. Martin Luther was not inspired by the Reuschland controversy, and Reuschland despised Luther. In our estimation, it was the indulgences dispute, it was the corruption of the Catholic Church that was the ultimate spark for the Reformation, after Reuschland had lost his controversy. After Reuschland lost his controversy, the humanists who rallied to Reuschland's cause had found another vehicle for their war against the church in Luther's cause. So Luther's success was greatly abetted by Reuschland's failure. There is no doubt that Jews would have been interested in the success of either man as we also see here, because Jews would have sided with any cause that would undermine the authority of the church, and they did. Continuing with Jones, who picks up the account after Pfefferkorn takes it upon himself to become the spokesman for the Dominican monks in the cause, of the, in the cause against the Talmud. Instead of going to the Pope, as had Donin, Pfefferkorn approached the emperor. In 1509, he applied to the imperial court for the right to confiscate Jewish books. Kunigund von Bayern, the widow of Albrecht, the Duke of Bavaria, the devout sister of Emperor Maximilian I, provided a letter of introduction to the emperor, who endorsed Pfefferkorn's proposals and authorized him to confiscate Jewish books and to examine Hebrew. That's a big mistake, confusing Jews with Hebrews, but we are going to have to tolerate it this evening. And to examine Hebrew writings anywhere in the German Empire and to destroy all whose contents were hostile to the Bible and the Christian faith. In September, Pfefferkorn arrived in Frankfurt, home of the richest and most powerful Jewish community in the German Empire. At his command, the city senate ordered the Jews to assemble in the synagogue and 
where they were told to hand over their books. 1,500 manuscripts were taken from the Jews and deposited in the town hall. One letter from the archives of the Jewish community in Franklin, I'm sorry, in Frankfurt, recites that on February, I'm sorry, on Friday, 28th of September, 1509, the butcher, meaning Pfefferkorn, came to us here in Frankfurt together with three priests and two friends from the city council, and they seized the books in the synagogue, the Tephalot, Mascorum, and Slekot, everything they could find, and forbade us in the name of the emperor to continue praying in the synagogue. The Jews did not sit idle. Humanistic studies of the sort promoted by Erasmus of Rotterdam had suggested that a new day of enlightened tolerance was about to dawn after the long night of scholastic obscurantism. And so the Jews were emboldened to act. Now Erasmus and the many humanists within the church who were his followers were the real sparks of the Reformation and Luther was the log they used to successfully start the fire, not Reuschlin. The Jews sent Rabbi Gumprecht Weissenen to the Archbishop of Mainz, who was persuaded that Pfefferkorn's activities infringed on his Episcopal jurisdiction. It was unusual for an individual of no official rank to receive such a mandate and the emperor's action drew immediate protests from both Jewish representatives and from the Archbishop of Mainz. Mainz is near Frankfurt in the Rhineland in Germany, who informed Pfefferkorn that the mandate was legally defective. Rabin Weissenen notes the same archival letter was successful with his request and, praise be to God, obtained help and salvation for the Jews. We have to choke on those words, but they are a part of history. This Archbishop of Mainz was, of course, Albert or Albrecht, the corrupt Archbishop that we know from the Martin Luther story. After warning German Jews, that should any community refuse to send money and participate in our efforts, they will no longer be regarded as members of the association of the remainder of Israel. The Jews sent another delegation, led by Jonathan Levy Zion, to the imperial court to negotiate withdrawal of Pfefferkorn's mandate. Levy, I won't say Levi, Levi Zion was frank in his reports to the Jews in Frankfurt. I shall not be able to achieve anything until you send a man who is prepared for three things. You know what I mean. Levi Zion's letter referred to Rasky's commentary on Genesis 32.8, which mentioned prayer, combat, and bribery as three ways to defeat an enemy.
Levy Zion and the Jews at Frankfurt settled on the last alternative as the best course. After pleading for money as soon as possible so that I shall not be forced to borrow money here at 100%, Levy Zion announced by letter that he had bribed the Margrave of Baden whom the emperor had assigned to handle Pfefferkorn's case. For this, Levizion wrote, I gave him, meaning the Margrave of Baden, something, and should we obtain what we are asking for in the petition, I shall give him an additional 100 gulden for his efforts. And so he acted on our behalf and made a great personal effort to annul Pfefferkorn's mandate. Even so, Levi Zion still felt everything is upside down. The apostate and his courtiers had persuaded the emperor to write to the archbishop that Pfefferkorn should be the commissioner in this business, together with the apostate, evidently another conversal Jew, because he's being called an apostate by a Jew, together with the apostate Victor von Karman in Cologne, another doctor from Cologne, a doctor from Heidelberg, and Dr. Reuschlin from Stuttgart. And Jones cited Erica Rummel as his source for the letter of Levi Zion, rather than one of the Jewish historians. And from this source, Jones makes a rather important observation in the next paragraph. And he says that this is the first time Reuschland's name appears in the controversy surrounding the confiscation of the Talmud. And the context is significant. Johann Reuschland is mentioned in the same letter in which Levi Zion admits bribing the Margrave of Baden. Levi Zion then asks for more money, presumably for more bribes, since it is very likely that the apostate, i.e. Pfefferkorn, will be commissioned to proceed. The Jews must immediately send wise and prudent men from our communities to the emperor. They must, of course, be well supplied with gold and silver and must beseech the emperor to be merciful and spare us, for I fear things that I do not want to write down. The Jews reacted to the threat of losing their books by bribing court officials and slandering Pfefferkorn at the imperial court during the winter of 1509 and 1510. In the spring, their efforts paid off. Emperor Maximilian I, ordered the Frankfurt Senate to return the books. To play down the injury to Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans, and to avoid any complaints on the part of the Jews that this had been undertaken lightly and without diligent consideration, the emperor created a commission to examine the Jews' books. Maximilian authorized the Archbishop of Mainz, the corrupt Albrecht of Mainz, to solicit reports from four universities as well as from qualified individuals. Johann Reuschlin was one of those qualified individuals.
As we have seen in our series on the life of Martin Luther while presenting the Reuschlin affair, or the controversy over the Talmud, from the perspective of the German historian Johann Janssen, Johann Reuschlin was a lawyer, a Kabbalist, and a humanist philosopher. He was a scholar in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin who realized the value of the original languages of scripture in the study of antiquity and Christianity. But Reuschlin also insisted on the preservation of the satanic Jewish treachery and blasphemy posing as religion, that which is found in the Talmud and the Kabbalah, and in, re- in this regard, he was supported by notable humanists, such as Mudian and Erasmus. However, he was opposed not only by Pfefferkorn, but by many traditional Christians. Reuschlin, the son of a high-ranking Dominican monk, found that the Dominican monks were among his most vocal opponents. Continuing with Jones... As a result, Johann Reuschlin was appointed to the commission. It was fortunate for the Jews, Gretz writes, and, and we see how Jets, Gretz just made this scathing slander of Pfefferkorn in a rage over Pfefferkorn's attacking the Jewish Babel. It was fortunate for the Jews, Gretz writes, that the honest, truthful Reuschlin so enthusiastically prepossessed for Hebrew and Kabbalistic literature was asked to give his opinion of Jewish literature. Johann Reuschlin was, next to Erasmus of Rotterdam, the most prominent scholar of his day. Like Erasmus and the humanists, Reuschlin saw scholarship as the study of language rather than dialectic in the scholastic mode. Unlike Erasmus, who confined himself to Latin and Greek texts, Reuschlin immersed himself in Hebrew as early as the mid-1480s. Reuschlin's interest in Hebrew blossomed while he was on embassy to the papal court in 1490. Reuschlin traveled to Italy as the crisis over the newly translated hermetic texts and their connection to magic reached its climax. There, Reuschlin met the recently reborn Platonic Academy in Florence under the direction of Lorenzo de' Medici. In 1463, Lorenzo's father had commissioned Marsilio Ficino to translate Corpus Hermeticum, which a monk had brought from Macedonia. Ficino then steeped himself in the Neoplatonic mysteries, which Julian the Apostate found so seductive a millennium earlier. Ficino aided in the translation of the Hermetica and Orphica, which constituted the Neoplatonic teachings, including the Chaldean oracles ascribed to the followers of Zarathustra, as well as the teachings of Pythagoras, which included many magic spells, esoteric teachings, and customs. Now, we cannot tell whether 
there is any surviving writing attributed to Pythagoras which actually resembled anything that Pythagoras himself had written. Nothing survives which we can be certain was written by Pythagoras, and his so-called teachings seem to have been created, for the most part, by Neoplatonists of the 3rd through the 6th centuries A.D. The so-called Chaldean oracles also seem to be the work of Neoplatonists and not of Zarathustra. Offhand, it seems to us that the Neoplatonists and all the humanists who later followed them were merely seduced by nothing other than Jewish fables. Returning to Jones. At a certain point, Pope Innocent VIII began to suspect that the Neoplatonic Academy was involved in more than simple antiquarian pursuits. In 1490, one year before Reuschland met Count Giovanni Pico del Mirandola, Garcius alleged at Pope Innocent's urging that Pico, Ficino's pupil, was promoting magic. For two years, the sword of Damocles had dangled over Pico's head. Then, Innocent VIII died in 1492, and Alexander VI, who is known in real life as Roderick Borgia, Alexander VI succeeded him. In his 46 sentences, Pico defended himself against the accusations of his opponents, and after his presentation on June 18, 1493, Pope Alexander VI cleared him of the charges laid against him. The way was then clear for the resurgence of Christian interest in magic. In her book on Giordano Bruno, Francis Yates laid the responsibility for that resurgence at the feet of Alexander VI, whom she claims had a special relationship to the Egyptian mysteries, astrology, and magic, as evidenced in the Pinterucchio frescoes in the Borgia apartments. And of course, this is not surprising, the Borgias certainly being crypto-Jews. Zika, citing Charles Zika, is more pointed. He claims the attitude of the papal court changed when Alexander VI became Pope because Alexander was intent on putting occult magic to his own use. One year after Pico's acquittal, Reuschland published De Verbo Mirifico, The Wonder-Working Word. His attempt to revive philosophy, lately fallen into the slumber of scholasticism, by linking it to the Hebrew language, Kabbalah, and magic. In it, Baruchia, a Jew, Sidonius, a philosopher, once an Epicurean but now knowledgeable in many different systems, and Reuschlin, under the name Capneon. And this is for certain Reuschlin, as Jones notes that the Greek word for smoke is kapnis, 
or Rosh in German. And Reuschlin is the diminutive of Rosh. So Catnion would basically be a Greek equivalent of the name Reuschlin. Sidonius, Baruchia, the Jew, and Reuschlin, under the pseudonym Catnion, conduct a dialogue in Reuschlin's book, De Verbo Mirifico. The three are not divided by their religions. Like the Masons at a later date, they are united by esoteric wisdom derived from the Kabbalah. Socrates was a wise man, but the wisest was Moses, who was wise not through his own intellectual powers, but rather through the Spirit of God in him. Only this Spirit, transmitted from one race to another, and now known as Kabbalah, makes one capable of penetrating the secrets of nature through the wonder-working word the title of the book. The most wonder-working of all words is the unspeakable tetragrammaton, Yahweh, the four consonants comprising the name Yahweh, which is similar to the tetrakis of Pythagoras, or Pythagoras, I'm sorry. Each letter has its own secret meaning, I-H-S-V-H, is the most secret name because it adds the letter and John says letter but it's really letters signifying Jesus and these are not necessarily the words of the Kabbalah but they are the words of Reuschlin in a defense of the Kabbalah actually in a promotion of this system based in the Kabbalah the Tetractus, which is mentioned here and misspelled. Allegedly of Pythagoras is also a Neoplatonic symbol. It is ten dots forming a pyramid, later employed by Kabbalists, but made out of the letters of the Tetragrammaton. Of course, the pyramid shape is also employed in masonry we can nevertheless see some of the lines which connect Judaism to the humanists and understand that even the earliest Neoplatonists seem to have Jewish influences. Now Pythagoras, the man who predated the Neoplatonists by about 900 years and of course predated the Neoplatonists of Reuschland's time by 2,000 years seems from the earliest writers who discussed him to have been influenced by Old Testament scripture, but those scriptures are hardly Jewish. And we don't have any surviving writing from Pythagoras. Here is a deception which both medieval Christians and E. Michael Jones have fallen for. 
The historian Flavius Josephus informs us that the name of Yahweh, the name represented by the Tetragrammaton, was ineffable only because it was officially forbidden by the authorities in the temple. The reasons for this had little to do with magic, but in his On the Jews and Their Lies, Martin Luther also referred to the Shem Hamphorus, which is a transliteration of the phrase which the rabbinical Jews were thought to employ to refer to the Tetragrammaton, the Shem Ha-Mephorosh, which can which phrase can be understood to mean the ineffable name. But in reality, the Jewish rabbis of the Kabbalah have created their own versions of the imagined ineffable name. In 12, 22, 42, and 72 letter varieties, in pursuit of the correct combination of letters, they believe they could have a spell by which uttering they can accomplish virtually anything. So, when a rabbi refers to the ineffable name, the Christian may think that he is referring to the Tetragrammaton, but the rabbi is really referring to something else, which is otherwise unknown to the Christian. In any event, Christians should recognize all of this as vain idolatry and imagine that God has his own will in spite of the invocation of his name. Christians are warned against taking that name in vain, which is what the Jews attempt to do through their spells. The name of God does not even belong in the mouth of a Jew. Continuing with Jones. Like Karl Marx three centuries later, Reuschling claimed philosophy would work wonders. It would change the world by unleashing the power of magic of the magic words which God himself uttered to Moses and Adam. To begin the study of magic, the adept needed to learn Hebrew to use practical Kabbalah, another word for magic. Like messianic politics, magic was the way of bringing about heaven on earth and was intimately bound up with the rise of the new scientific worldview. This guy's the second most leading scholar in Europe at the time and the first most leading scholar was just as nuts. Magic was associated in the popular mind with Jews. Jews knew how to cast the spells that would bring about this worldly riches and power. Both magic and applied science involved a turning away from the cross, which is to say, the God-ordained necessity of suffering in this life if one wants to attain salvation. In the place of the cross, the adept of practical Kabbalah proposes the techniques refined by Jews that enable one to get what one wants four centuries after the publication of De Verbo Mirifico. C.S. Lewis noticed there is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both the wisdom of earlier ages, while separating both 
from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both, in the practice of this technique, are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. And while people today have been trained to believe that they are modern and progressive, a lot of the so-called scientific practices are actually disgusting Kabbalistic sorcery. Jones does well to understand the connection between science and sorcery, but he falls short in understanding the true suffering which the cross of Christ represents, which is nothing other than the delivery of the seed of the woman from the dilemma of Genesis 3.15, where the word of God said, And I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The proof of this is found in the purpose of Christ described in Luke chapter 1, that we should be saved from our enemies that seeded a serpent in Genesis 3.15, and from the hand of all that hate us, and the fact that the Jews are the seed of the serpent, as described by Christ himself in John chapter 8 and elsewhere, teaching Christians the magic of the Kabbalah, and causing them to abandon the Christian faith, as even Pfefferkorn attests, the Jews have waged their war against our race. Continuing with Jones. The seeds, interesting, the seeds planted at the Platonic Academy of Florence, and this is a medieval revival of Neoplatonism, which really was um, killed by Justinian in the early 6th century AD when the pagan schools of Greece were closed. The seeds planted at the Platonic Academy of Florence under the patronage of the Medicis bore fruit at the turn of the century. In 1501, Giovanni Mercurio showed up in Lyon wearing flowing white robes and a chain around his neck, announcing he was omniscient and could change lead into gold and bring happiness to the depressed. The chain derived from the same Pythagorean, or really Neoplatonist, a chain of love and friendship whose symbology would exert its influence over Reuchlin. Reuchlin's De Verbo Mirifico introduced the idea of Neoplatonic magic to the lands north of the Alps. In it, Reuchlin tried to break down the barriers separating religion, philosophy, and magic through recourse to the Hebrew language in general, and in particular through the rehabilitation of the Kabbalah. 
which he saw as the oral, esoteric tradition that had come from Adam himself. How does this not sound like masonry? Kabbalah, of course, had no ancient pedigree. It and, and Jones is entirely correct here. It apparently arose in the 12th century in Provence. It was the Jewish equivalent of the Albigensian heresy, a resurgence of Neoplatonic Gnosticism. None of the proponents of Kabbalah, however, saw it that way. Instead, they viewed it as the original theology, the Prisca Theologia, at least as old as Christianity, and probably much older than that. Pico had already established a necessary connection between Kabbalah and magic in his writings. Reuschland took his ideas one step further by claiming that natural magic was impossible without the Kabbalah. Reuschland separated himself from the magic manuals of the Middle Ages in place of these magic spells, which were either meaningless mumbo-jumbo or worse, appeals to evil spirits. Reuschland proposed the magic of the Hebrews found in the Kabbalah, and none of it was Hebrew and intimately bound up with their language, the language of God himself. Reuschling claimed because God spoke in Hebrew. Hebrew words uttered in the proper way had an immediate physical effect. They could not bring about creation ex nihilo, meaning from nothing, but they might very well influence the angels put in charge of that creation by God. In learning Hebrew, as Reuschland did at the feet of the rabbis, the adept learning the language God himself had used to speak to Moses. I thought it was the King James Version of the Bible, I'm sorry. Men could now use that same language in speaking to the angels, who ran the universe and create wonders by their very words. Zoroaster, the first theologian, according to their view, recognized the unique nature of Hebrew words and so forbade any alteration of their form because the divine power of the word was only effective in its original Hebrew form. During the dialogue between the three learned men in De Verbo Merifico, Reuschland expands his praise of Hebrew into an attack on Greek, which, in the words of Baruchius, the learned Jew, possesses no words that have come down to us from heaven, and no names which can be characterized as having divinely ordained syllables. Moses, because he spoke Hebrew, had priority over the Egyptians as well, because the Hebrew language is more ancient. Divine names come to us from the Jews, and not the Egyptians. Hebrew names are more ancient and holier than any other names. What a pile of Jewish horse manure. Concerning the Kabbalah, Jones is entirely correct that the book has no provenance in antiquity, but is actually the work of sick and perverted medieval rabbis. Jones's connection of the Kabbalah to modern science is also quite adept, since both 
the Kabbalah and modern science both seek to make God's creation conform to the will of a man rather than conceding the fact that man being the highest element of God's creation should conform to the will of God and that would be how I would express the words which Jones quoted from C.S. Lewis where Jones and his sources refer to Pythagoras the appropriate reference would be to the Neoplatonists so it seems also where references to Zoroaster are made that they are also actually only Neoplatonic writings later claimed or attributed to be to belong to Zoroaster perhaps the name of the Neoplatonic Chaldean oracles itself is prophetic since the real source is indeed related to mystery Babylon and assuredly to neither Pythagoras or Zoroaster I'm tripping over the names I'm sorry of course Johann Janssen the primary source employed for our series on Martin Luther and the Reformation had not gone into the writings of Reuschlin or what had influenced him to any great extent. There are many scriptural arguments which can be made to dispute Reuschlin's position on the importance of the Hebrew language, as it says in Isaiah chapter 28, for instance, with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to his people. But Reuschlin, who was supposedly a man of great learning, seems to have easily fallen for the sophistic devices of the Jews. Unfortunately, this seems to have been the case with a great many medieval scholars who imagined that the Jews were necessary for the study of Hebrew and an understanding of the Old Testament in Hebrew. Seeing the Jews as sages, the Christian is led into the ditch in spite of the warnings of Christ. Continuing with E. Michael Jones. Taking his cue from Alexander VI's approval of Pico, Reuschlin defends the connection Pico established between Kabbalah and magic. In his conclusions, Pico claimed that immediate access to divine mysteries and powers was available through the Kabbalah. Part of the Kabbalah was also the highest part of the Magia Naturalis, or natural magic. Reuschlin claimed the Kabbalah demonstrated the validity of the Christian faith, (laughs) that's incredible, and also corresponded to the esoteric wisdom of Orpheus, Pythagoras, and Zoroaster. And we must interject that the ancient Greeks attributed a magical effect to the music of Orpheus, but hardly in the sense of the Kabbalah. By locating the magical power of his system in the Hebrew language, Reuschlin hoped to evade the dichotomy of the church following the classical tradition. The the dichotomy the church following the classical tradition had established. According to that dichotomy, 
a man either asked for power over nature, in which case his action was known as prayer and dependent on the permissive will of the deity, or he forced the issue by invoking evil spirits, and that description itself seems to be a Jewish assessment and not belong to the church. Kabbalah seemed to indicate another possibility, the possibility of a middle ground between science and prayer, based on the magical effects of angelic names in Hebrew, seemed theologically unlikely, but that is the course Reuchland pursued, hoping to evade the censure of those who claimed he was involved in black magic. The Hebrew language saved Reuchland, at least in his own mind, from becoming a proponent of black magic, which involved contact with demons, and was practiced under the name of Solomon, Adam, or Enoch. Hebrew was the key to making contact with the good spirits, whose silent help enabled, enabled the practice of natural magic. The true philosopher should not invoke demons, but if the philosopher is unable to perform wonders, he is no better than the garrulous schoolman who, like spiders, spin words but produce no effects. Sidonius says, we would therefore be hardly distinguishable from the vulgar if our miraculous vocation was not accompanied by miraculous actions. Reuchlin's idea of a wonder-working philosophy had much in common with Thomas Munzer's view of scripture. To be truly alive, the word of God had to create signs and wonders. The same was true of Reuchlin's Kabbalistic philosophy. Philosophy had no value if it couldn't work wonders beyond the power of man to explain. The Kabbalah would rehabilitate philosophy by its miracles, which were bound up not with evil spirits, but with the power of Hebrew. It must have escaped Reuchlin that such beliefs had never assisted the Jews who had held them for a long time before he himself was convinced. All the power of the Jews in the 16th century had come from usury, from bribery, and from debauchery, not from the alleged magic of Hebrew books, but from accounting ledgers. How could a man such as Reuchland be taken in with these Jewish fables? In the same manner, generations of Masons have been deceived with similar Jewish fables, even to this very day. The answer lies in this, that worldly men are not so wise as they imagine themselves to be. The only real wisdom comes from God, through his prophets, his word, and his Christ. Continuing with Jones, Reuchlin's fatal attraction to Kabbalah took root on his journey to Italy 
when he studied with Obadiah Sephorno, a Jewish physician, philosopher, and more importantly, collector of rare Hebrew manuscripts and books. Two years later, Reuschland was back in Italy, this time on an embassy to the imperial court in Padua. On this journey, he received instruction from the emperor's court physician, Jacob Ben Yehiel Loans, L-O-A-N-S, how appropriate a name for a Jew. Reuschland and Loans remained in contact for the next decade, and Reuschland repeatedly expressed his admiration for his Jewish teacher. Fully aware of Reuschland's intercourse with the rabbis, Fepperkorn exclaimed later, If I had said these things, I would have been burned at the stake, and in this aspect, Fepperkorn was probably correct. Studying the Kabbalah required a sort of hermetic initiation. The Kabbalah, Rummel says, was taught hermetically, that is, reserved for the elect. It was often associated with magic, a connection deplored even by Jewish teachers of stature such as Moses Mamanides. It would not have been taught to someone who was either skeptical or disinterested. It would only have been taught to someone avid to receive initiation into its mysteries. The Jewish masters, who had taught Reuschland, therefore, must have seen in him a potential adept, or perhaps a useful sucker. Christians, Rummel continues, began to take an interest in the Kabbalah during the 15th century. The Italian humanists, Pico della Mirandola, connected the Kabbalah with natural magic, that is, the study of celestial bodies, and I believe that natural magic is connected to the study of the celestial bodies in that manner because of the actions of the magi from which we get the word magic and their interaction in the New Testament in being able to tell what was going on from the stars. So it was basically natural magic in this context basically seems to be astrology. But they rejected its counterpart, black magic, which is rightly excised by the church and has no foundation, no truth and no basis. Nevertheless, it remained a controversial subject. It continued to attract the attention of inquisitorial courts and was therefore pursued by Reuschland at some personal risk. <coughs> and those are Rummel's words connecting natural magic to the study of celestial bodies. I don't think the Kabbalah is limited to that. The Dominican monks were the chief adversaries of the Talmudic writings in the Reuschland affair, and as we had learned from the last chapter of Jones's book, Dominican monks were also the official judges in the trials of the Inquisition. Jones continues, After Reuschland met Pico, and learned about the Kabbalah, Gretz says, he thirsted for Hebrew literature, but could not quench his thirst. More accurately, Reuschland 
desired to learn Hebrew to slake his thirst for esoteric and arcane knowledge. In De Verbo Mirifico, Reuschland wrote, The language of the Hebrews is simple, uncorrupted, holy, terse, and vigorous. God conversed in it directly with men, and men with angels, without interpreters, face to face, as one friend converses with another. In 1506, Reuschland issued De Rudimentis Hebraicus, the first Hebrew grammar ever written by a non-Jew. Four years later, when Reuschland was at the height of his powers and reputation, Pfefferkorn approached him after he heard Reuschland had been appointed an expert witness for the commission then deliberating Pfefferkorn's plan to seize the books of the Jews. Pfefferkorn came away from the meeting pleased, claiming Reuschland had been cordial and had even graciously instructed him on the fine points of etiquette and protocol at the imperial court. Reuschling completed his evaluation on October 6, 1510, and sent it to the emperor in a sealed envelope. He recommended that two books, Nizakon and Taladeth Jeshu, should be confiscated and destroyed. The Jews should be allowed to keep their other works. This meant that Reuschland did not include the Talmud among the books which ridicule, slander, and insult our great Lord and God Jesus and his mother and the apostles and saints. He said, I have read only two such books, one called Nizikon and the other Talduth Jeshu HaNatsri. Reuschland gives the impression that these books had no standing in the Jewish community. Even the Jews themselves regard them as apocryphal. While at the court of Frederick III, Reuschland heard the Jews themselves saying in frequent conversations I had with them that they have removed and destroyed such books and forbidden that people should in the future write such books or speak thus. So Reuschland's decision on the books of the Jews was basically harmless to the Jews, harmless to the Kabbalah, and harmless to the Talmud. The Sefer Nizahan Yashan, or the Book of Victory, mentioned here, is an anonymous 13th century Jewish apology, which evidently originated in Germany and was also addressed by Luther. The so-called Sefer Toledat Yeshu, or the Book of the Generations of Jesus, mentioned here, is evidently, or really of Yahshua, is evidently a medieval work which is a slanderous parody of the Christian gospel. Continuing with Jones, at this point in his report, Reuschland's testimony becomes problematical, if not erroneous and self-contradictory. If the Talmud were deserving of such condemnation, the words of Reuschland, our ancestors of many hundred years ago, whose zeal for Christianity was much greater than ours, would have burnt it. Reuschland says, well, of course, it would, the Talmud just didn't exist in the age of the apostles. Reuschland says, no pope ever burned the Talmud. 
But Geiger corrects the historical record by reminding the reader that both Gregory IX and Innocent IV had consigned copies of the Talmud to the flames. Reuschland might have been an expert in Hebrew philology and grammar, and Jones notes that Heinrich Gretz disputes Reuschland's expertise in Hebrew. But he was abysmally ignorant of the history of the Talmud, which had been burned more than once by his ancestors. Reuschland claimed the baptized Jews, Peter Schwartz and Pfefferkorn, the only persons who insist on its being burnt, probably wish it for private reasons. Yet Reuschland made these claims after admitting that he, unlike Pfefferkorn, had neither read the Talmud nor understood it. No one, Reuschland continued, can say in truth that the Talmud, in which the four higher faculties are described, is completely evil and that one cannot learn anything good from it, for it contains many good medical prescriptions and information about plants and roots, as well as legal verdicts collected from all over the world by experienced Jews. Reuschland then characterized the Talmud as a work which is difficult to understand. He also said that there were many strange ideas in the Talmud, but that did not justify its destruction. Of the Jews, Reuschland said, whether they are inimically disposed toward us in their hearts, only God can say. Defense of the Kabbalah was unnecessary because the Pope had already recognized its value and Pico had shown Christians could use its teachings to strengthen the Christian faith. And all I could say in response to that is wow. Jews could not be called heretics because they had never fallen away from the Christian faith. The Jews had the right to retain their property, including the Talmud, because they were citizens, a then unusual term of the German Empire. Reuschland insisting that the Jews were citizens of the German Empire at a time when the term was very seldomly used. Well, we know who got them to say that. I believe in the Martin Luther series, we had discussed the Kabbalah at one point and discussed the fact that the Kabbalah certainly does not allow Christians to strengthen their Christian faith. The Kabbalah actually repudiates the Christian faith because the Kabbalah teaches that man can elevate himself to the level of God, where the Christian faith insists that God brought himself down to the level of man. The Kabbalah repudiates the divinity of Christ simply by making the assertion that anyone with the correct words and magical formulas can attain to the divinity of Christ. That is not a way to strengthen one's Christian faith. And all of Reuschland's defense of the Talmud certainly seems to have come directly from Levi Zion. 
perhaps with some large banknotes attached, but of that we may never know the truth. In Jones's continued assessment of Reuchlin's defense of the Talmud, we may see that the final effects are indeed foreboding. Jones continues. Despite stating that it needed no defense, Reuchlin then defended the Kabbalah, which he referred to as the most secret speech and words of God. So Reuchlin claimed theologians who did not know Hebrew had made serious theological errors, an assertion that undermined theology, according to the Dominicans, by making it a function of scripture scholarship, which is to say, language studies, not dialectics. And here we must agree in part with Reuchlin, but we do not need either Jews or their Talmud to do it. He concluded, no Christian should pass verdict on the Jews except in a secular case transacted in a secular court, for they are not members of the Christian church and their faith is none of our business. The claim, their faith is none of our business, combined with the equally daring claim Jews had rights as citizens did not endear Reuchlin to the Dominicans, whose mission since Penafort had been the papally mandated conversion of the Jews. So according to Reuchlin, evidently the beliefs of the wolves should not matter to the sheep. What the wolves believe is none of the sheep's business. Penafort, or Raymond of Penafort, was a Spanish-Dominican friar in the 13th century related to the House of Aragon, who errantly dedicated himself to the conversion of Jews and Muslims. We saw how that played out in the Inquisition. Continuing with Jones. In his report, Reuchlin denounced Pfefferkorn's writings as the work of an ignorant hate-monger, thus establishing the debate's parameters, the refined man of letters versus the ignorant Toph Yud, a racist slur picked up by Reuchlin's supporters, including Erasmus of Rotterdam. And an accurate translation evades us, but Yud is certainly Yid, or Jew. Pfefferkorn called Reuchlin a Judaizer, a term, and this is important also, a term then in the process of losing its opprobium among educated humanists. If the term Judaizer loses its opprobrium, it's probably due to the Jewish influences among them. Pagans and the humanists were basically pagans. Pagans and Jews always got along very well with one another. A long history of cooperation, which escapes today's idiotic neo-pagans. Reuchlin's claim that knowledge of Hebrew was necessary for the correct interpretation of the Bible was guaranteed to offend theologians, no matter how much it pleased humanists. Those theologians, under the direction of the Cologne Dominicans, still wielded considerable political power, although not as much as in previous centuries. The conflict settled into the humanist versus scholastic mode, 
And that's exactly how Johannes Janssen had always characterized it. Even though, or perhaps according to Rommel, because it obscured the central contention of Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans, namely that Reuschlin was a Judaizer. And Johannes Janssen, in his history, never characterized Reuschlin as a Judaizer. Indeed, Judaizing was a virtue to those who made theology a function of Hebrew grammar. It would soon become equally esteemed by the Reformers who believed that theology must be based on Scripture alone. And again, the Reformers were correct, but the Jews were unnecessary to that end. And we would assert that the study of language is very important to our theology, but we do not need the Jews for that either. Learning Hebrew and the original meanings of the passages of Scripture is not tantamount to being a Judaizer, except that to the medieval Catholic Church, the Old Testament was a Jewish book, and any study of it at all was basically Judaizing. So the way that the medieval Catholic Church used the term Judaizer is quite different than the way that the Apostle Paul would have seen Judaizers in the first century. Reuschland continues, The most significant part of the report is Reuschland's praise of the Kabbalah. And he says, I have read it myself. One could argue about the pros and cons for a long time in this report, but one may see from the book entitled Apologia by the earlier mentioned Count of Mirandola, Pico which has been approved by Pope Alexander, Borgia, that the books of the Kabbalah are not only harmless, but of great use to the Christian faith. And Pope Sixtus IV had them translated into Latin for the use of us Christians. There are sufficient grounds, therefore, to conclude that such books as the Kabbalah should not and cannot be legally suppressed and burned. Jewish commentaries should not and cannot be abandoned by the Christian church, for they keep the special characteristics of the Hebrew language before our eyes. The Bible cannot be interpreted without them, especially the Old Testament, just as we cannot do without the Greek language and Greek grammars and commentaries for the New Testament, as is confirmed and indicated in canon law. Since the Jews, and here Jones is basically paraphrasing Reuschlin, since the Jews are our archivists, librarians and antiquarians who preserve books that can serve as witnesses to our faith, Christians should take care of the existing books, protect and respect them, rather than burn them. For from them flows the true meaning of the language and our understanding of sacred scripture. (coughs) Excuse me. And Joan says, One needn't be a learned theologian to see that Reuschlin was turning the Talmud into a meta-scripture that would serve as the criterion 
of what was valid in the Bible. The Hermetic texts had become the real scriptures, and they were to be interpreted not by the Catholic Church, but by the nascent academic establishment, which had taken instruction at the feet of the rabbis in the atmosphere of quasi-Masonic Hermeticism. Even Roisland's caveat against books promoting magic was qualified to the point of meaninglessness, and that's a very good conclusion to Roisland's words by Jones, because that certainly would be the effect. If there are, however, Hebrew books that teach or instruct readers in the forbidden arts, such as sorcery, magic, and witchcraft, if they may be used to harm people, they should be destroyed, torn up, and burned, because they are against nature. But if such books of magic are designed only to help and benefit human life and serve no harmful purpose, one should not burn or destroy them except books about buried treasures. The naivety of Johann Reuschland is astounding, but it also preponderated amongst learned men of the time. With the humanists, whom we have already demonstrated were predominantly pagan and not at all Christian, the Jews would indeed come to rule the roost. Johann Reuschland is certainly a clear example as to how the Canaanite Jews have indeed become pricks in our eyes and thorns in our sides in these last days. We will return to these thoughts as we continue our presentation of the Roisland Affair from E. Michael Jones's perspective in the very near future. Yahweh God be willing. Thank you for listening and good night.